I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest today is singer-songwriter David Gray, best known for his at first self-released 1998 album White Ladder, which became a success after being picked up and re-released in 2000 on ATO Records, a label founded by Dave Matthews, and in fact, the label's first release. It became a massive commercial success in the United States, Ireland, the UK, and other European territories. And with hit songs like Babylon, Please Forgive Me, This Year's Love, and Sail Away, David's career had arrived, but it wasn't an overnight success. His first three albums, The Century Ends, Flesh, and Sell, 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 released in 93, 94, and 96, respectively, had all been critically appraised, but praise doesn't pay the bills. And White Ladder was the make-or-break release for David with its mix of acoustic and electronic sounds. It paved the way for a new breed of singer-songwriters in the early 2000s, and White Ladder became the best-selling album ever in Ireland, and I'm told the 10th best-selling album of the 21st century in the UK. Since then, David has continued releasing records and touring, sometimes with a band, sometimes solo, and albums including A New Day at Midnight, Life in Slow Motion with the single The One I Love, Draw the Line with its single Fugitive, Foundling, Mutineers, and more recently Gold in a Brass Age, and Skellig bring his total of studio albums to 12. In 2020, David released a 20th anniversary edition of White Ladder, a deluxe set with bonus tracks and other goodies, and set out on an international tour to celebrate the anniversary. But COVID had other ideas. The tour had to be postponed. But David has now picked it up, and I'm happy to say joins me today from Cleveland, I think. It's, uh, it's great to see you. Welcome. Yeah, it's a proper spinal tap start to the tour here. It really is. To hello, Cleveland, to kick the whole thing off for me, you know. What more can you say? Yeah, here I am in Cleveland. Yeah, and and you were telling me uh, before we started recording that uh, you're also back into into the fun rock and roll stuff of uh, flights being delayed, immigration problems, hotel check ins not being ready. Uh, welcome back. Yeah, it, it's it's that's all part of the grind, isn't it? That you, that you have to roll with it, I, I suppose. And um, yeah, you get your sea legs. You sort of get into the weird exhaustion excitement cycle that touring provides and there's a sort of tight-knit family behind the stage and we all sort of have to look after each other a bit I think uh, you know for environmental reasons I've decided there's no flights wherever possible we're, we're, we're going by the bus everywhere so these monumental drives for example from like Phoenix to Austin Texas and uh, Vegas to Seattle sort of thing it's it's just bus time so I think it's going to it's going to bind us all together, but in a way it keeps you out of all that airport chaos. It just seems like, you know, we had uh, the repercussions of the 9-11, which have sort of messed with international and, and you know, travel of all kinds. And then COVID, which brings a whole level of complication. Mm. And then in, in the UK and Europe, there's the complications of Brexit and staffing. And it just seems like going into an airport is just, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen anymore. It's um, it's it's a stress city. So it's in a way, it's nice to be out of that. But yes, it's a, it can be a bumpy ride, and you've just got to kind of get your head straight and uh, focus on that gig at the end of the day. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. I know you've done your fair share of driving uh, across the country through through the years. How yeah. is it this time uh, around on uh, on a big bus traveling across the United States? I mean, I know you're at the beginning of it. You started in Canada, but there's nothing like it, is there? Really, I've driven across this country a couple of times, and there's just nothing quite like it. It's the romance of being on tour. 
you know, it is, it's, it, 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 I think having had this pause from it, you know, you can do too much. You can, you can become kind of deadened to, to, to the thrill. You, you can just get sick of the whole thing, uh, you know, being a, constantly transported like a piece of luggage. But I think having had a bit of a break from it, mm. yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it's a romantic thing. It's a romantic, and something about setting off across North America has all that romance bound into it. I mean, I must've done it 30, 35 times there. Uh, but yeah, it, we're all dead excited still. I mean, we've all, we've got millions of road miles under our belts, but it, it, it's, it's a, it's a thrilling thing. You're looking at the gigs unfolding and you're looking forward to every single one. And I think as you get a little bit, maybe a bit further down the line in your career, you, 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 it's a finite thing. How long will my voice be looking after me in the way that it has? How long would all these things and all these people be able to come together? You know, mm. so, uh, you, you're thinking, I don't want to let one of these shows slip away. You know, even if it looks like a bit of a duffer on paper, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be going after that crowd. I do not want any gig to go by without that, that energy igniting in the room. So that, that's, that's what our MO is as we sort of set off and, and everyone knows that. And I'll, I'll set the pace from the front, uh, out on the front mic and it's, we, everyone's just so up for it. It's the, it's, it's. Added to this drill and the, the romance of the road, you've got this supercharged energy that's out there. And, and the, what this record means to people is very personal and what it means to us is very personal. And when everything fuses back together after this long layoff, it, it, it's, a, it's a mighty feeling to, to be a part of. Now, you and I have a little history. The early part of the timeline is a, is a bit fuzzy for me. Maybe you can fill it in. But when I was working at WDST in Woodstock, where I first got my radio break, I remember you coming up with your promo guy, Sean Cochlear. I'm pretty sure it was a Friday night. Uh, I think you were doing promo for your first album, A Century Ends. And uh, a guy, I say a guy, he was a kid at the time who was working with me, a guy called Paul Higgins. His brother had been to see you in, in, in New York. They were all very excited. I, I had, to be honest with you, I hadn't heard of you at the time. They said, no, you got to have this guy. So you came up with your, with your guy, Sean. Uh, you did a lot. We, I was just hitting Paul up on messenger before we got this and it was, did he do it live? Was it recorded? Is I think he did it live. And I was like, is there a tape? And he's like, no. And I go, God, but you did a short session and an interview for a show I hosted back then called Indie Flux. Um, tell us about those early days, making records, heading out with a guitar, playing small shows and driving, uh, I'm presuming not on a big bus with a whole band, probably yourself or just with one guy to play small dates, small radio stations, all that stuff. That's exactly right. Yeah. It was, uh, sometimes it, it was a good story. You turn up somewhere, there'd be some people, you'd have a great show. It was all very exciting. It, the, the, the very beginning was, was really exciting. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a, a strategy for the press. I didn't have an angle. I didn't have any of those things. I, I set off, um, with all good intentions and I, I had no idea what was going to happen next. So. We had some great shows in Cafe Chenet and places like that, tiny mm. places and all around the country. And, you know, I made friends like I did at KCRW. I made connections that have lasted right until the present day. And I, I do think in America, it, it's an act of turning up at radio stations, turning up in certain places and maintaining those connections that are so important here because it's a big old place. And I think that's what really glues the, the relationships is what glues it all together. And. Now, that was just the beginning for me. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the shine wore off a bit over the years where it didn't work out and you're suddenly doing the same thing, but 
it's getting worse and worse. And it wasn't mm. that great anyway to start with. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, it was, I think sell, sell, sell was just a bloody disaster, really. And I think EMI, who we were sort of shackled to at that time, they, they meant well, but they were a company that was just disintegrating and that had, there was no thought or, or, or sense of, uh, it was just, it felt completely futile and, um, that, that was quite soul destroying. I think the touring we did around that record, it, it left a nasty taste and a nasty feeling that's never completely gone. I mean, I can laugh about it now because things have worked out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it, it, it was, it was, and this is really what came before white ladder and why, you know, when you've had a few cracks at it and it hasn't completely worked out, uh, you, you know, I had to reset myself entirely and, you know, look in and see, did I still want to do this thing? Or did I believe I could still do it? Yes. And could I do it better? Without question, I could do it better. I'd found live came very natural to me, but uh, you know, uh, the, the recording thing was an effort and I, it, it's complex. And I'm, you know, uh, what White Ladder was, was the beginning of getting hands-on with the actual recording part. You know, my friends Orbital, who were sort of making waves with electronic music, I was watching them. I was thirsty to get some of this sound that they mm. had somehow into my stuff. And Clune was very much up for that adventure too. So it was the, once we got Yestin on board, who produced White Ladder with us, we, just those three people, we had the know-how and that the fusion of all the different ideas of the three of us, that's the sound of, of White Ladder really, with a bit of Tim Bradshaw's keys in there too. That's really the sound at the record. But we, we quickly, by fusing in this way and by myself opening up my writing process, every part of the process to other people as well, uh, it, it became a kind of hybrid form. But I, I realized instantly that I wasn't losing any of the personality of my music. I was only gaining by allowing other people in. I could always strip it back and do it on my own if that's what I wanted. You know, so you've got a track like This Year's Love, which is basically that. It stands there as a ballad in the middle of the record. Um, and yeah, but that, that, that's what made it stronger, letting these other people in. And it was a, every record I've made since then has been pretty much along those lines. I'm always open for other people's ideas and input. So it's just, where's it going to come from each time? So it was, it was a, it was a turning point, but I think with all records, you can say all this, this waffle about how it happened, but really it's the emotional content as well as that creative aspect, that, that personality you give it that sonic personality, it's, it's, it's what you're going to put into it. it it's got to have that thing that it's so personal, it hurts. And that's what people want to hear in a piece of music. They want to hear something ventured. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, we, we put it all on the line and, um, you know, we, by the time we finished it, we were very proud of every single tiny bit and piece because we'd been responsible for every hi-hat, every drum machine, snare drum, every tiny bit of vocoder. We'd made all the decisions. We didn't have much to play with, but we'd stitched it all together. And what we had didn't sound like anyone else's record. Dylan, Leonard Cohen's, Neil Young, the people who'd sort of, you know, inspired me when I first heard them. This sounded like us. And uh, it sounded like, yeah, okay, we made it in my bedroom, but it sounded like, 1998 and it sounded like us three doing this thing so we didn't know what that meant but we found out that it meant something good so you mentioned uh, kcrw radio station in los angeles where you first visited them around the first time you visited me up in in woodstock on the on the first record and then you know fast forward 
uh, through those three records, 298, uh, 99, uh, White Ladder is, is, is done. And uh, surprise, surprise, I find myself in Santa Monica. Uh, the bright lights beckoned and I was holding down the, uh, the, the morning show there, Morning Becomes Eclectic, uh, when a producer over there at the station, Gemma Dempsey, gave me a chrysalis publishing copy of White Ladder. And I was like, oh, that's that guy who came up. Oh, right. They, oh, man, this is fantastic. And I started playing it. Uh, and I have to say the audience response, uh, the radio audience response was immediate. I think it was back in a day when radio perhaps had a, a little bit more punch than it uh, does today, you know, with obviously lots of other ways people discover music. Uh, and of course, it came out officially uh, a year or so later. And I do remember you and I connecting again at that time. And you had your then manager, Rob, with you. And I do remember there was a certain amount of relief on both of your faces that this album had actually found an audience. Because I remember you both saying to me, man, this was it. If this wasn't going to happen, I don't know what we would have done. But, you know, the rest is history, as they say. And the album did, uh, well, it, it effectively primed your career for the last 25 years. It transformed everything, and obviously, you know, in a wonderful way, it, it grew. And while we were in the ascendant with it, it was the most thrilling and unforgettable time when uh, we weren't just in step with ourselves and um, doing something that really mattered in in a very personal way. With obviously our own record made on our own label, you know, self financed, it couldn't have been more personal. We weren't being foisted on the public by a major label. We were doing something ourselves it, it was an incredible feeling to see it catch on and yes it, it was a sense of relief you know and uh, and and joy really so we were grateful every time we got somewhere and there was an audience and watching that audience grow you know in america the matthews model is you go around and you tour it hard baby so we did six or seven tours just on white ladder alone around the mm. u.s and um and we watched those gigs you know, grow, we were going from, you know, four, three or 400 people to suddenly playing the Fillmore in San Francisco and gigs like that, where it's like 1500. And it, it, we watched it going up and going up and going up. Um, I think at a certain point, it just kind of becomes a blur because you're just basically on the road, but it was, it was an amazing, an amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, then I had to negotiate in its wake. I've had to negotiate what having a big success like that means to the, the music you come up with next and and, and that, that every gig from then on is a kind of negotiation with with, a, with certain portions of the crowd. You've got some hardcore fans who listen to whatever you do, but you've got some people who want to come and they want to hear the songs that they love you for. So yeah. you've, got, you've got that tension then that's in, in, in the relationship from that point on and trying to create enough breathing space so that you're interested and they're happy. And, um, you know, that, that's one of the things about this White Ladder Celebrational Tour is there's no tension in it at all. We're giving them everything they, they would ask for in a show. So, I mean, I'm making a rod for my own back here. I'm, you can be damn sure that the next tour is going to have no White Ladder songs in it whatsoever. <laughs> you know, when, when something burns so brightly, though, as a, as a massive platinum album, does, does that overshadow what, what comes after it? Of course. Yeah. I think it does. Yeah. I yeah. think because, um, yeah, that, that's what for, for most people who were that paying that much, that's what they they know you for. And, uh, you know, you, unless you're carrying on having massive commercial success, I mean, it became such a mainstream success. You know, if you look at what a century ends was and where I was placed sort of uncomfortably placed in the kind of indie regime that I wasn't really a part of either. I'm basically neither thing. 
I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with the mainstream. I love pop music. I, I, I think a brilliant Elton John song, you know, from the seventies is just as good as anything else. You know, feeling good by Nina Simone was a hit. It doesn't mean the ones that she wrote that or played that weren't a hit were, were more interesting or of more value. Right. It's, it's, there's nothing to be afraid of there. There's a lot of, um, worship of kind of obscurity and, and degree of difficulty almost uh, within sort of the music ranks. But yeah, so it's, it's been a, I can't remember what the question was now, but um, it's, 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 yeah. What, what was the question? <laughs> you, you, you answered the question, which was essentially, you know, does having something that massive over, overshadow the work that follows it? And I think you answered it very succinctly. Yes, it does. But I, I, I think that, you know, I'm often asked the question, what do you advise people who want to get into the music business? You'd be a singer songwriter. I said, well, you just have to set your stall out the way that you want it to be, because if, if all you want is success, then you better start priming yourself in that way mm. and you bet, better get ready to smile and you better, you know, you, you've got to, you know, you've got to go that way. If, if what you want is something else, you want to be creatively, um, free and you want to be able to follow the path wherever it leads you, then that's something else Then you have to take the, the rough with the smooth, I'm afraid, because it's not all going to be successful. Like white lab is successful. That was looking back on it. It was so many different things coming into line together. It was the sound of that record. We got this momentum. It was the right time, right place, right thing. And it just became something that just went on out across the world. Obviously record companies did what they're very good at doing, which is when the units are starting to shift, they turn the temperature up and suddenly it's everywhere. And Hey, why don't you try white ladder? You know, I was having a, I was having a conversation a couple of nights ago for this podcast with, uh, with Ben Harper Oh yeah, and we were, we were talking, uh, a, a little bit about, you know, what is it, what, uh, there's a question I'm going to ask you in my little questionnaire that sort of refers to it in, in a moment, but you know, what, what is it that can make the difference between an artist hitting, uh, and an artist not. And at the end of the day, there are so many things that have to line up simultaneously or within quick succession. And I don't know, maybe it's 10 things and maybe you have nine, but if you don't have the 10th, then it doesn't happen. I mean, there really is no sort of rhyme or reason apart from timing and everything, just sort of, obviously you got to have the album and the songs and the performance, but there's so much else that goes into it. Right. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and I think when you, when you watch documentaries, you see all the different egos involved in something that's been hugely successful, trying to make sense of it from their own personal point of view, nine times out of 10. They, they completely ignore the biggest structure, which is the entire sort of cultural financial phenomena that they're a part of, which is this, there's a whole world and web of connections within the media, within the music industry itself. And within the public, there's a whole way that things work that, that really, it, it doesn't really, it's nothing to do with how you wrote the song, in, you know, or how you, it's, there's a whole other thing that's going on that allows it to sort of catch fire in a certain way. If the prevailing wind is from the right direction the sparks will fly whoosh, mm. you know, but it, it's, it's, it. yeah, there, there's, 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 there's so much more to it. As you say, that's so true. We'll get to these questions in a minute, but just one more very quickly, as we started this conversation, we mentioned that you had originally planned on the 20th anniversary tour, right as COVID hit, uh, you've now picked it up. How did you spend the last couple of years? I'm presuming like a lot of people, you were locked down perhaps with family. What came out of the last two years for you personally, and perhaps as you are looking forward to uh, what's next for you musically after the uh, the White Ladder tour? Yeah, well, it was this in a nutshell. 
the first lockdown, the first few months were a wonderful opportunity to be with my family. Um, you know, normally if I'm not off somewhere, I'm about to go off somewhere, you know, or I'm off somewhere in my own head because I'm been making something. And when I'm making something, it's a kind of weird disappearing act as well. So I'm not really that there. I'm sort of preoccupied all the time, but I wasn't that person. I was there with them and it was wonderful to spend time with them. We had a, what was a very precious, we were granted a very precious space of time. And at that point there was nothing you could do. You couldn't go anywhere. We'll have one journey outside each day. Mm. So, you know, we watched movies, we did this, we did that. It was, that was sweet, but yes, it was difficult with the tour, but I'm quite kind of compartmentalized in my thinking. I think there were all kinds of huge difficulties, financial and practical difficulties with the band and crew and everybody that we work with, the amount of money we'd already put into it that we immediately lost the moment it was canceled. And then how we were going to pay people over that time and cash flow and all the rest of it. But that's mm. all a bit boring. The business from a, creat yeah. from a creative point of view, I think I was in a kind of, I started to go down to my studio and just work completely on my own and do a few things. And a few little projects came in and I did them and, um, was enjoying that. And then I, as I started to get a bit of a head of steam going, I thought, you know what, I'm going to make an album myself this summer. I immediately started putting the pressure on and about a month into it, I just thought, what are you doing? You know, because it was causing me stress. I had no one even to press record. I was pressing record and running into the library. You know, it was like, and I'm not like a technical computer geek. So I had no backup whatsoever. I, so why are you making, why are you making it this way? Why, why do you need to put yourself under pressure all the time? Can you exist without this? Right. So I made a decision at that point just to go away from the whole thing. If I felt like it, I went down and I worked a bit, but I didn't do a great deal. Then the idea of finishing the Skellig record was put, hoisted up the flagpole and that's what I got busy with. So. And we worked remotely. I was in my studio. My producer was in his studio. We didn't get the software where he was controlling the computer and I could go in and record. It was quite wild. And, and we were doing it sort of people on one part of London. I was in another and we, we basically did all the overdubbing and all the extra bits. And then when things eased off a bit, he came around, we finished that record and we decided we we're going to put it out straight away. So that was that part. But in terms of the writing, I mean, that was already recorded. So I didn't really write very much. And then that the turning point came late last year when I realized that this tour, this May tour of the UK and Ireland was definitely going to happen. And the reason why wasn't because of COVID, it was because the, there's, everybody is out. There's never been so many bands on the road. If we wanted to reschedule, if something happened, we'd be waiting 18 further months to get the, the line up the arenas in the way that we had them lined up and to get things like Red Rocks and stuff like that as we're playing on this tour. So I think that moment of realization, it's like Omicron, whatever, do you know what I mean? This is going to happen. I, it was like something happened in my head and I just, from uh, leading up the few days just before Christmas, I started to write a song. Then I finished it, I wrote another one. And then Christmas happened. On the other side, I just picked up again. And I wrote about 30 songs in the space of just a few months, which for me is, that's very fast. Uh, and um, so I went into this sort of creative frenzy and I was almost reluctant to get off that horse with the white ladder thing that was to coming. The tour, yeah. Right. Well, it's not just before we get to rehearsals, I like to prep. So I'll get my voice ready so that when I get into an eight or nine hour day shift of singing, I'm not going to tear it ragged by the time of the first show. So mm. I like to build up from an hour to two hours to three hours a day. 
I'm really just focused my head, not on writing, but on the thing, thinking, thinking about the stage, as Freddie Mercury says, it takes months to get ready, darling, months. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you can't just, you can't just walk out there and, and, um, you know, that, that, that's basically, that's that. So that was my lockdown. I, I ended up with a final creative flurry and I've now got this massive work, which I'm going to have to finish probably start trying to get to grips with it September, October after this bit, before we go to Australia, but hopefully that record will emerge next year or at least part of that music will. Can you give us a, a little advance idea of, uh, what kind of record it will be? Because obviously you've stylistically, you've, you've sort of gone between electronic and more pop and then more acoustic, and then you've done piano stuff. Um, it's difficult because it, at the moment it's very, very diverse. So there are some things that are probably closer to a kind of skellig or a kind of, uh, quietness. Uh, and then there's these very, very direct songs. I think I'm more, I'm very drawn to the direct singing, the sub straight from the heart, um, lyrics that will hopefully grind you up a little bit. That's, that's the kind of thing. So, um. It's, I'd say it's close to rap. It would be a hugely um, dangerous uh, analogy to make. But what I mean is, I think when you listen to something like Hajira by Joni Mitchell, there's a kind of delivery that's quite fast. It's almost talking. There's a lot of, lot of, lot of lyrical ideas flowing very fast over a chord structure. So some of the songs I've been writing, it's, it's like this. It's almost, um, it's not literary, but it's, it's very, it's very lyrically dense. So it's very rhythmic. So I, I'm like a staccato delivery. Yeah. It's, it's, there's quite a lot of songs that are like that over quite a kind of angular. So very, I've got these two fantastic, tiny little drum machines. Apps. I mean, I tell you tiny there. They're, 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 they're called teenage electronics, make them. They're these, it's basically like a drum machine, but without the box. Wow. So it's just, it's just a chip. It's like a piece of, it's got the chip and then it's got a few knobs on it and a few tiny little buttons, but they distort like, like crazy. So, uh, I, I've been doing these really fucked up drum machine beats and, and then, and then just basically sort of almost like rapping on top. So very simple guitar chords over a fucked up drum machine and then getting these very sort of staccato delivery kind of heart wrenching thing. That seems to be the way it's going. So I emotionally, it seems to go very raw kind of back to basics, straight delivery. So where golden, the brass age was maybe more, uh, abstracted. I'd say this is more narrative driven. So that, and, that's about the only guidance I can give on what it's going to sound like. Right. And, 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 and where, where are you at lyrically after two years of living with the same people? Yeah. Well, I just, I, there's always so much that's bottled up. And when you get into the writing process, you, things emerge that you haven't really thought of. So it's a, it's a constant surprise. Um, it's, it would be hard to ca categorize or, or, you know, or sort of pigeonhole the, the drift of the lyrics, there's some very, very personal stuff. Uh, and, uh, and then there, there, like I say, these idea songs where I, I kind of got hold of an idea and my imagination rushed into it and a bit like nemesis, I just got one idea after another and, and, and the, 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 the lyrics just kept coming. I mean, I wrote just gazillions of, I think there's this, I had this idea for a song called my future bride and, um. Once I got into this idea of what that might be, 
uh, at one point I'm looking up and um, between the uh, constellations of Pegasus and Cassiopeia, you see Andromeda. And Andromeda is at some point going to engulf the Milky Way. So um, it, it, I, I'm basically, yeah, it's like, I, yeah, anyway, I, I got such a head rush on that I, I, I think I've written more lyrics for that particular idea than I've ever written for anything. I, that it just pages and pages and pages of these, like I say, they're very rhythmic. Um, mm. uh, and then just one thing to see, oh, I could do this, I could do that. And so, yes. Um, have had a wonderful time really with, with the lyrics. Sometimes, sometimes the lyrics are quite hard to find. So not this time, there seems to be a lot to say. I don't know what exactly I'm trying to say. I, I haven't got an objective opinion about that yet. So, so are, are you a good editor? Do you, do you have to sort of spend some time going back through those reams of, of, of lyrics? Well, I'm going to have to be. And I think that on a broader sense, which songs as well make sense right. together. So I think when I write and I really get down to the writing, like I have been doing, there's, there's an awful lot. You, you make a few biscuits from the dough, but there's a huge amount left over. And, 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 and I'm always reluctant to let that just slip away. So it will form like a Skellig type record off to the side for sure. So I'd say that this phase that I'm in, when I finish the 10 or 11 songs that I've got left to finish and whatever else turns up, there'll be enough to make at least two albums there. One will be, I think it's important that they kind of cohere in, in a sort of articulate way around a sort of central idea and, and sonic. I think there could be a lot of contrast within it, but it's, I'll try and make them make sense to, with themselves. Let's jump into, into these questions about um, your relationship with music from childhood onwards. What, what's your first musical memory? I'm not sure what the first one is sequentially, but uh, my dad playing Cat Stevens, The Beatles, Elton John, like from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And, and the smell of wine and beer and cigars and fags and stuff coming up mm. from the, the living room. So that, that is like growing up in Manchester. Um, and, but also my mum listening, she was a singer in the choir. So listening to the pieces she was doing. So, uh, Handel's Messiah and things like that. And, and really beautiful choral pieces like mm. Allegri's Miserere and things. So, um. That, that, that those those two things are the, the kind of with a bit of puff the magic dragon thrown in there. I think I like that. <laughs> what was the first music you bought with uh, with your own money? Well, the first single I bought was um, "I Don't Like Mondays" by the Boom Terror Rats. Mm. Uh, so that was nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, the same year I bought the "One Step Beyond" by Madness. The first album I bought. It was a big deal to buy an album and I didn't have much pocket money. So it took a while to save up enough money to buy an album. Yeah. Were you like me? Like you had like a pocket money and you could maybe afford a single every week or every month or something like that. Yeah. I, I used to have to, my jobs were, I used to have to get the coal in, fill the boiler every morning and, and make a cup of tea for my mum and dad. So God, Jesus, I, my kids, they haven't to do anything. That was, that was your first job <laughs> making tea and stoking the fire for the folks. Um, yeah, that was, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was my life. And then I don't know what I got for that, but it was very, very little money. And I think if I saved up for a few weeks, that was a couple of weeks, I might be able to afford a single. Right. And then what I started to do was you know, I stopped not, not spending my dinner money and basically just starving myself so I could buy music. That's, that's what I started to do. And I got 
job as well. I got a job. I was working in my dad's, my dad had a cafe. I was working there as a washer up during right. the holidays. Oh man, those dishwashing gigs at the age of 15 or something. I had one myself. The best thing about the dishwashing gig was that I had, to, I, I could listen to the music in the, the back of the restaurant. I could have my own radio and listen to whatever I wanted to. So I had right. my guest. You could listen to late, late at night radio as well. So you could listen to whatever you wanted. Uh, I, I used to love that because I hated the shit everyone else wanted to listen to. So, um, yeah, that, 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 that part of that job, I didn't mind. I'd, I'd be preparing salads. So I was first in, I could listen to that, uh, sort of six o'clock, sort of five, six o'clock sort of slot on the radio right. and then listening to the late night thing as I was cleaning up at the end of the night. Yeah. That, I guess in those days, that's sort of how you found things, you know, how you discovered either word of mouth or just through doing that. Right, right, right. I had a job in a chip shop, uh, uh, making, making the mushy peas in the back as well as, you know, slicing the spuds and, you know, uh, they wouldn't actually let me serve chips, but, um, yeah, I was in the back listening to the radio myself. That's how I discovered music. I, really, I, I failed as a waiter. My dad would, he wasn't having me out there. I failed. I, I was only about 12 and a half, 13 when they put, sent me out to the front of house. I failed miserably. So I went in a dishwasher, but I was happy back then. It's so funny. You can buy a can of mushy peas now, but back in the day, you had to just boil the crap out of peas oh, yeah. until they just marrow fat. <laughs> that was my job. All right. Um, what was the first concert that you went to without, uh, adult supervision, without parents? Well, it's, this is a good story because, um, my best friend, Mark Irving, his brother, Stephen was for some reason, I think what I remember about careers evenings when I was growing up in the middle of nowhere in Wales was just basically you're either going to become a farmer, you're going to go into the armed forces, you're going to go to university or good luck. You know, that was basically <laughs> it. So he went into the Navy and uh, like, he's a total pacifist kind of wanted to be a hippie, but he got to travel around. So he was stationed in Portsmouth and he'd go and see gigs and he'd come back and he'd tell us about who he'd seen the cramps, the blah, blah, blah. And so he was up at the HMS Edinburgh and they were stationed in Edinburgh. And he said, oh yeah, we're up in Edinburgh and the Smiths are playing, um, in, in two nights time. And I'm going to go and see the Smiths. I could get some spare tickets. Why don't you come up? And I said, uh, to my mate, I said, come on, let's do it. Let's just bunk off school. Let's get up. Let's go, let's go to Scotland. I mean, how mm. mad is this? This <laughs> is St. David's. So it was 15 miles from the nearest town with a rail railway station. And so we got there, we got the train to Manchester and we got the train to Edinburgh. And then we called him on the ship. We said, Steve, we're here. You know, of course he didn't have any tickets. It was a total lie. <laughs> but he, he couldn't believe we got there. So then we had to scalp some tickets outside and we were all in, we were all in different parts of the Edinburgh Playhouse and we watched the Smiths. It was the meat is murder tour. It was in fact, it was just before the meat is murder tour. The boy with the thorn in his side was, was the single. And, uh, they were just starting to unveil that music. So. They'd had the first album and then Hatful of Hollow. And now there were, there'd been a few singles. So yes, completely mad. And, you know, we were all in just different parts of the building and the big this thing with the Smiths at the end, they had these kind of stage invasions. We sort of knew that. So when the bouncers kind of moved apart, as it got to the end, we all rushed down the front and we, 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 we sort of found us each other. And then we were there. I gave Morrissey my beads and Stephen decided he was going to stage invade, but he got his timing wrong. And he sort of rushed the stage, hoping to grab hold of Morrissey. But Morrissey had sort of skedaddled to the other side, whisking some piece of sort of budlier around in his arms that he just ripped out of the wall outside. And, and he had to grab the bass player. And I remember him being thrown out off the stage by the bouncers who, who got him. So he grabbed hold of Andy Roar 
uh, instead. So that was my first gig. And wow. it was weird seeing the Smiths. Uh, I remember the chant, Johnny Ma, Johnny Ma, Johnny Ma, going round and round and round. But the weird thing was the music is so elaborate on record. There were about five or six guitar parts. It's really meticulously presented. Whereas live, it was just three musicians plus Morrissey. So it was nothing like as sort of complex or as engaging. It was much more basic. Right. There's certain th- songs like, you know, I don't know, Wheel Around the Fountain sounded good. But other ones where it, it was like there's about four different guitar parts, they just didn't sound. I, I, I remember um, what difference does it make? That was brilliant. So uh, that was my first gig, Smiths. That's quite a story. I, I mean, I got to tell you, I've, I've I've had a number of conversations around this subject over the last year or so, and uh, you're you're the winner. <laughs> well, it didn't it didn't end there because we 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 missed the train back the last train. So we had to sleep on Edinburgh station <laughs> so for a couple of 16 year old boys who'd never even been out of bloody Wales. It was, wow. it was quite an adventure. We wrapped ourselves in newspaper and we lay down in a photo booth on Edinburgh station. And then these tramps came along in the middle of the night. That was obviously what they did. Get the fuck out of there. Get the fuck out of there. And we're like, Jesus Christ, man. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was a, it was a learning curve. You know, as you tell this story and this is not my interview, obviously, I mean, I'm hosting it, but I've got those stories because, you know, when you were a kid back then, 15 or 16, you just went somewhere. And if you didn't have anywhere to crash, you found a hedge or, you know, something you just, yeah, whatever. It it was all part of the the adventure. The journey was just as good as the gig. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was just a, a, just as probably a more important part of it, really the bonding with your mates and, you know, seeing if you could actually pull it off. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Uh, you and I were talking a little bit earlier on and you mentioned orbital obviously, and that sort of, uh, had, had an influence on, on how you approach, uh, white ladder. So, you know, dance music is a part of your story as well, right? It is, but I'm not that drawn to that music as if I want to dance personally. I, I prefer something more human. I, I've never been a raver. Mm. I went to a few of the orbital gigs back in the day and it was a bit of an adventure. And, you know, obviously it was a sort of drug fueled kind of mayhem, which is basically what it was. Mm. Um, but it, it's not my kind of thing if I want to let go. So I'd be more drawn towards the meters or, you know, maggot brain, uh, you know, like uh, it just, just mad tracks that, Oh, you know, the Bee Gees, uh, uh, you more likely see, see me dancing to Vogue, you know, than to sort of some kind of electronic thing. So I, I'm just, yeah, that it's, that's the lovely thing about dancing. It's not anything to do with being cool. There's a cool section to electronic music and dance music. But, you know, when I went to raves, it wasn't my thing. You know, people just kind of stand in there going like this completely out of their minds. I mean, mm. I, that, that's, I, I don't know. I, I, so I, yeah, something like really funky, like the meters or James Brown or something, just like, yeah, man, when you just get lost in the groove, that human groove where people have got synchronized blood rather than sort of MIDI, MIDI cables. <laughs> what, what do you listen to if you're feeling sad? Well, I'd, I'd say I probably wouldn't listen to music if I was feeling sad, if I was feeling kind of wistful. You know, then perhaps I'd put certain things on. I mean, classical music is very affecting when, when you're in that mood, when you're very prone. I think this is the thing about music. It's, it's an abstract thing. And that's why emotions attach to it so readily, perhaps. Um, but there's a song 
Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Cobim. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that record they made together at Capitol. Yeah. Where Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, uh, Sinatra sings that. Uh, that is just exquisite. It's one of my favorite pieces of music. So uh, to, to, to gaze at, you know, at the, 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 till the final flicker of life's ember. Um, this is here where I long to be here with you so close to me till the final flicker of life's ember that, that always, uh, hits the spot. So there's one. And maybe if I'm feeling kind of eighty sad and, and thinking about friends that aren't here anymore, I might listen to something from that era. Like this night has opened my eyes by the Smiths or something like that. It's got a kind of melancholic ring to it. Did you say eighties sad? Well, I mean, I'm sad that, you know, people die and stuff. And, um, I, I understand. Yeah. Eighties, nineties, like folks that were, you were around. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a sad song. It's just, I mean, there's so much that binds to music in just an incredibly powerful way. We were just talking about this on the bus last night. We're talking about the, the record, Steve McQueen by Prefab Sprout. Paddy McAloon. How I did a trade with, um, someone i can't remember what record i gave them maybe it was the cramps uh I, I might have given them off the bone and they gave me steve mcqueen it was like an art art school i mean an art uh, class school uh trade-off i i'll give you this so i'll give you the blue nile yeah uh, you, you give me uh steve mcqueen and i'll listen to your cassette for yeah. a couple of weeks and then we'll trade back so like that way of listening and that record and how it reminds me of that time um uh, and you know, and cause some records, I just, I, I'm reluctant to listen to them because I think there's just so much memory attached to them. If I ever wanted to try and remember my life, it's like, you remember things about yourself. When I listen to that record, I can remember the kind of cigarettes I was smoking, you know, and, and like the parties and that, oh my God, I went out with that girl. <laughs> but that's the power of music to just sort of take you right back to that place where you first heard it. Yeah. Particularly when you're young, I mm. think it just. It, you're, it, it is actually making you as a person, your, your identity is fused into these things. How you, I don't know if it's the same now that people, the kids identify so readily with a kind of music. It says something about who you were. If you chose to listen to, you know, Black Sabbath or ACDC, that was a big thing. If you were Motorhead, you were over there. If you were listening to the Jam or the Specials, you were over here. If you were listening to Duran Duran and all that other stuff, you were down, somewhere down the middle. You know, um, it, it was like you, you made a decision it, and the clothes you wore and the music you listened to, that was what the decision about kind of person you kind of wanted to be and what you, what your angle was. Yeah. It's very, it's very different. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day about how you, you, at least growing up in England anyway, is like you picked a lane, you, you picked your style of music and it tended to go along with fashions and, and, uh, the other people who you, who you hung around with. I, I found myself, I got a couple of years on you, but I found myself digging into albums, uh, from, uh, 1980, 81, the other day and listening to the Comsat angels and the sound and, you know, all that sort of post punk pre-new wave stuff, which defined who I was at 23, you know, it's, uh, it'll just take you right there. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite mad how much memory is, is bound into these things. I, I think if I was feeling really sad, I don't think I'd listen to music because it would just upset me. Right. And I, I, th I, th I think that, you know, I, I once had to play a show for my dad when he was, you know, only had a, he died a couple of days later, but we had a big party for him and uh, you don't realize music is made of emotion. 
until you're so full of emotion yourself that you can't get the words out of your mouth. It's like mm. you, you don't see the substance of music for what it actually is. You see the effect it has on other people, perhaps. But suddenly, I, I couldn't get it out of my own mouth. I, I couldn't stir the words out and put them out because I could see actually what the, the whole emotional fabric that I was being a part of, and it was just overwhelming. I was so emotional myself. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I don't think usually I would listen to music if I was sad. It would just make me sadder. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just got to sit in it, right? Do you, do you have uh do you have a favorite music video? Uh, well, I'd, I'd probably have to say something really dull, like Dylan doing, you know, subterranean homesick blues. I mean, I, I was never really that into music videos. If I'm honest, there's loads of brilliant ones, you know, Peter Gabriel and all these people, they just turned it into an art form, didn't they? But, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, I guess that I was never really that interested that, you know, I, if I like the band, like the specials or something, you know, the, their videos were kind of cool because they obviously just didn't care, you mm -hmm. know, terrible lip, syn lip syncing budget of about 50 quid, you know, mm -hmm. let's just get everyone into a taxi and, and sing ghost town for five minutes. <laughs> Love that song. Do you have uh do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I always try and keep my ears open. So I love the track, So We Won't Forget by, I'm going to try and say this right, Krangbeam, uh, that kind of, that's like a Thai word for aeroplane. I think we call them, uh, at least I call them Krungbin. Okay, well, I, I'll, I'll go with that. Could be wrong. So We Won't Forget. So I, I love that on the Mordecai album. Bard of a Wasteland by Gabriella Smith. That's a, that's a fantastic track. Young Brothers, Chris Sharkey. First Rain by Duval Timothy. And then an album of sort of weird, it's like before the cello, there, there were these six stringed things, which I can't remember what they were called, but like cello type violin things. Mm. A woman called Molly Heron, who's got a band called Science Fictor. They've made an album called Through Lines. Mm. And that was one of the things I listened to uh, really on repeat for a little while uh, towards the end of last year. So I listened to a lot. I'd say I listened to quite a lot of music that doesn't have words. Um, you know, and, but these, these things generally do, the things I'm mentioning, apart from Young Brothers by Chris Sharkey. I love that track. So I, you know, I think my listening is very, very limited. I don't like algorithms. If the computer suggests anything to me, I just ignore it. Uh, I, it's either someone tells me about something or I'll listen to something like Late Junction on Radio 3 and, and, and I'll just make a note of anything that's interesting and I'll investigate, um, you know, in, in that kind of way. So like, um, is it Christine Oliveros, the, the, the crazy sort of uh, sound sculptress? Yes. I, I discovered that crazy record that, that she made uh, in the, the giant concrete underground chasm cistern. Uh, what's it called? It's got a great title. Oh, anyway, uh, damn, forgotten. Anyway, that, that's, that's been another recent, that was a record made a long time ago, probably early eighties, but, um, that, that record is absolutely phenomenal. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I pick up on things and then because I've discovered her, I'll just, I'll listen through, you know, on a streaming service to other things she's done and, 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 and slowly, 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 and then occasionally you find something else and that leads you somewhere else. So that's my very gradual listening, but those are all things that have come onto my radar in the last six months. 
Yeah, well, thanks for those. That's a, a list of stuff I know some of, but not all of. So that's uh, some suggestions for me to get into. I appreciate it. Do you, do you have a, a band or an artist that you love, uh, but feel that they perhaps never got the big break they deserved? And this sort of ties into that question we were talking about a little bit earlier on about how things have to line up, you know, and you can't necessarily pick what those things are. But I'm sure, like me, uh, there are people who you love and you thought, wow, they should have been huge. Yeah, it's weird. I, that's, I, I found that question a bit tricky because it's, it's really, I think some bands and some artists, they just stay at a certain sort of level, either because what they're doing is a bit too complex to be, or, or it just doesn't quite, they're not, they, they get set at a certain point. Like, let's say someone like Bill Callahan, who I think is for me, for my money in the last 15, 20 years has been head and shoulders above anybody else in the singer songwriter game, but I can't see him becoming big because he's too weird and he's, he's too set in his ways to just do this, this strange, almost, um, literary kind of exploration of what a soul might be. It's, um, I find his humor, he's got like a bit of that deadpan kind of Leonard Cohen about him, but yeah, I can't see him sort of becoming bigger. He's kind of just this thing. He's very well known within certain sort of zones of music. People, oh yeah, they'll kind of love him, but it's never, it's never going to cross over in that way. And so he sort of makes his living by following his own path. It's like the bands that could have been massive, that weren't quite massive or, you know, bands that made like, for me, seminal records, like the gun club, the fire of love, which has got to be one of my favorite records from when I was growing up that, you know, the people just don't really know about. Um, but for me, I mean, you just put that on the sound of the guitars. I mean, it just like takes your head off. It's just fantastic. So, you know, for me, that's one of my favorite ever records. But when you say it to people, no one's, most people have never heard of it. Do you, do you have a band or an artist that you would describe as a guilty pleasure? I listen to any old crap. I mean, I, as I say, I, I don't have, I, I don't have the thing that there's that, that there's good and bad music. I think taste is what's really fascinating, and the idea of good taste and bad taste. I mean, it's not difficult to see when something is just a load of, uh, you know, sort of synthetic commercial rubbish. But even within that, you get someone still doing something, all the reasons for it are wrong and it'll end up being something that just gets under your skin and you go, yeah, I love this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I think, you know, I, I listen to like massive mainstream stars. They've made some brilliant records. You hear a track by Rihanna or, you know, whatever. And you think this is absolutely fantastic. You know, I, it, I, I can't get enough of it. My kids think I'm hilarious, you know. Oh, no, no, what's your name? No, Dad, you're so embarrassing, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I love it all. It's my, my daughter just had a 20th birthday party in our house. She'd been pestering us to have a party in the house. And I finally succumbed, I guess, because I'm going to be away for two months. I said, okay, go on, do it. Apart, apart from the complete mayhem that that unleashed, it, listening to the, to the music they had on was fascinating. And, and you know, my wife was getting really stressed about the house getting trashed, but I was like, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, what they listen to, you know, cause I've never heard of most of the stuff they're listening to. And then they'll suddenly listen to like a classic thing. So maybe like a Bee Gees track or a Madonna track, but it's a mashup. Someone sort of done like a sort of David Guetta style sort of mega mix on it. 
So it's not just, you know, staying alive. It's got extra kick drums. It's got extra heft. It's like, and it's only about three minutes long because they get bored after three minutes. Sure. It's, it's, it's it's that sort of, I'm I'm fascinated. I I need to spend more time with the young, but they just won't have me. (laughs) (laughs) It's the, it's the TikTok mix, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know how it all fits together, but yeah, that's, uh. Yeah, so I, I don't have a, I don't think there is such a thing, really. I mean, you know, I could say Barry Manilow or something, and that would be a lie, but it'd be worth saying. <laughs> I love Barry Manilow. They call it the Lowland. Yeah. She was a showgirl. <laughs> as, we, as we wrap up our, uh, our get-together, first of all, thank you. I mean, I've known you 29 years, and I wouldn't say we're mates, but we sort of bump into each other every four or five years somewhere, and it's always just such a pleasure to catch up with you. I really appreciate it. And so we finish up uh, uh, the interview with this last question, and that is, how are you feeling right now? Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. I'll give you the honest answer. Um, I'm feeling very, very tired. Because uh, I'm, I'm just a bit preoccupied about my voice. Those are the things I'm feeling with tonight's show looming large. Got it. I think when I'm in the middle of a tour, like the UK, I prep it in a certain way so that my voice is kind of as close to unbreakable as I can get it. So when I really push the boundaries in the gig, it, it, I can do it again the next night. But I think we've just had like in a month of just doing the odd show here and there. And so that's, that's my preoccupation. I'm just a bit preoccupied and, and a bit tired. And of course the voice is just a beam of energy. It's the most fragile part of the whole gig. Mm. So, um, it's, it's that, that's, that's, that's what, when I'm on tour, that's what I'm preoccupied about. Slightly preoccupied and definitely a little bit tired, but, uh, I know the venue we're playing in tonight and it's one of these kind of, it has a kind of raucous atmosphere. So, um, it's when you get this big. The sheds with the big metal roofs, it reflects the sound of the crowd back to themselves as well as to us. And it kind of makes it seem even louder and then they get even louder. So, we're, you know, there'll be a lot of whooping and hollering and I'm sure we'll have a, a fantastic show. Well, I, sh- I should let you go. Uh, I've kept you talking too long, obviously. Yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to call her. I'm going to end this call. Yeah, we're done. Great seeing you, David. Very nice to see you. Nick. Yeah, That's thank nice. you. Cheers. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 